Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast with Pastor Joseph Gibson at Cranberry Community Church. We hope God speaks to your heart through today's message. Now this morning we're continuing uh, in the series, Unlocking the Parables. Uh, We've said for weeks now that uh, Jesus said in Matthew 13 that when he taught parables, the purpose of the parables was to reveal secrets that uh, had been hidden since the time of creation. Secrets of the, kingdom, uh, of the kingdom of God hidden from the time of creation. In the last couple of weeks, we've looked at a couple of the more well-known parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and then last week, the parable of the prodigal son. Today, we're looking at a, a parable that's less well-known, lesser known, uh, and we're looking at one that's less popular for sure. It's a parable that we only find in the Gospel of Luke, But more unique than that uh, is this specific parable of the 44 or so parables in the the Bible in Jesus' teaching. Uh, This has a feature like no other parable. It actually has a character that is in no other parable. It's the only parable in all of Scripture where God is a specific character in the parable. So he's implied in many of the parables. In this one we're looking at today, he's a specific character. Uh, mentioned by name, and it's the only one that that takes place. It's in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. It says, Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you. Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards the kingdom of God. So we call this the parable of the rich fool. It's the only one, as I said, where God is a specific character in the story. But what we want to do is what we've done every week. We want to kind of zoom out and look at the overall context, the surrounding context of what's taking place. So we kind of find the setting for this parable back in verse 1. In Luke 12, 1, it says, uh, Meanwhile, a crowd of many thousands of people had gathered. So many thousands of people are present. And in fact, it says, if you continue reading, that there are so many people that they are trampling on one another. Uh, Now, when we first started this series, we were in Matthew 13, the parable of the sower and the seed. And it says that multitudes, probably thousands of people were there. And Jesus, what he did was he pushed out into the water so that he could teach them all. We even looked at a picture of it. It's the, uh, the cove of the sower, they saw it. He pushed out into the water so they could all hear him. That's not what's taking place here. So here we have a parable or a crowd of thousands of people. But what it says is Jesus looked and he began to speak just to his disciples. So thousands of people are around, but Jesus takes this opportunity just to teach his disciples. And his primary message to his disciples in this moment is on the subject of fear. 
He's saying things like, don't be afraid of those who can take your life, but do nothing to you after that. Don't be afraid of this and that. Don't be afraid. Uh, he says, you know, you're worth more than many sparrows. Uh, every hair on your head is numbered. Um, don't be afraid of persecution and arrest and, and even death. And we get to verse 11, and he's still just talking to his disciples. And he says, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. So again, just to paint this picture, we have Jesus standing there. There is a crowd of many thousands of people gathered around him, but he's only speaking to his disciples. And he's talking to them kind of about a heavy subject. He's talking to them about not fearing, not being afraid in the face of death and persecution and arrest and, and all of this. And the Bible says that in the mid middle of these teachings... He's basically interrupted by someone in the crowd. Verse 13, it says, someone in the crowd, so he's not even talking to the crowd, but someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This has nothing to do with what Jesus was just talking about. He's not even involved in the conversation that Jesus is having. If you have children, you can appreciate this scenario. Emily and I, on a pretty much daily basis, will be having a conversation about something, and the kids will bust through the door, and, and they'll ask, you know, how much food does a bunny eat, or something like that, and we're in the middle of a conversation here. That's kind of what's taking place. Jesus is talking specifically to his disciples, and this guy just interrupts and says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. Now that's kind of disrespectful by itself, but the way that he talks to Jesus makes it even more respectful because that word said and the word tell uh, in the original language is the same word and it means to command. In other words, this man in the crowd stands up and he demands of Jesus, Jesus, I command you to command my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, we're going to hold on to that thought for just a minute, and we're going to come back to it, because I'm going to revisit this crowd of many thousands of people. Uh, the crowds, by this point, were not unusual. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus began healing all the sick, uh, you know, blind eyes, deaf ears, everything's being open. And when that began to happen, uh, all of a sudden, the crowds began to form more and more and more. And in fact, between Luke 5 and, and Luke 12 alone, I think that's eight chapters, uh, the Bible talks about crowds forming over 20 times. I mean, it's crowds and crowds and crowds of people and they're growing. And because of these crowds, what happened was to get to Jesus, you had to fight through the crowds to get to him. So in Luke chapter 5, we find the men who are carrying their paralyzed friend on the mat. And Jesus is in the house, but they can't get through the crowds, remember? So they go up on the roof and they tear a hole in the roof and they lower the man down just to get to Jesus because the crowds are too great. In Luke chapter 8, there's the woman with the issue of blood. And the Bible says the crowds were so great that they were basically uh, crushing everyone, yet she fought through the crowds to touch the hem of his garment so that she could find healing. And what we see is this. When people fought the crowds to get to Jesus, they brought their priorities to him. When they fought through the crowds to get to Jesus, they were bringing their priorities to him. So what we have this morning is this man who has fought through the crowds to get to Jesus, but only to make this demand. 
Make my brother divide the inheritance. And Jesus replies in verse 14, man who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you. Now we're not given the exact parameters of this situation or the full details of this, this situation. And it would seem like this is kind of vital information to what's going on. Now why in the world does Luke not give us all the details? Because if you know anything about the writings of Luke, Luke is meticulous. Luke sometimes seems to give us too many details. Luke never leaves anything out. So why does Luke not give us details of this guy and the inheritance and the situation there? The answer is because it must not be relevant to the point that Jesus is trying to make. According to Jewish law, the older son got two-thirds of the inheritance. The younger son, or the younger sons, split the rest. So is this a scenario where the older son is refusing to divide the inheritance properly with, the rest, uh, with, with his younger brother? Uh, because if that's the case and this younger brother is coming, he's kind of justified in his request. Uh, or is it a, a case where the younger brother has come and he wants half instead of a third? Because if that's the case, then it's against the law and it's kind of greedy. We're not given those details. We don't know the answer to that question. And the lack of those details, again, tells us they're probably not relevant to the point that Jesus is trying to make. Uh, in fact, if they were relevant, then Jesus would have asked well, give me more details about your situation. Who, who owes who? What's this, what's this situation? No, Jesus doesn't even ask. Instead, Jesus just says, uh, I'm not an arbiter between you. And then in verse uh, uh, 15, he turns to his disciples again. So he had been talking just to that man, and he says to the man, I'm not your arbiter. And then he turns to them, uh, to, to the disciples, and he says to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Now, when the Bible talks about greed here, it's a very simple meaning. It just means the desire for more. You can be consumed by this desire for more. Now, why does Jesus say all kinds of greed? Now, if we look again at the scenario, uh, what he's saying is sometimes greed just looks different. It can be kind of the prototypical greed of, of I want more and more and more so I can accumulate. Or sometimes you can have a greed, a desire for more that you feel justified in. You know, I, I want more, but it's because I've worked hard for it. I want more, but it's because I've earned it. I want more, but it's because I deserve it. And that might even be the case with this man. He, he wants what is due to him. He feels that he has earned it and he deserves it, perhaps. Jesus doesn't even go there. He just says there are all kinds of greed. Sometimes you even feel justified in your greed. So what's so wrong with desiring what's rightfully yours? What's so wrong with wanting more if it's rightfully yours? And, and the answer is, is We're kind of finding it in this scenario. This man has fought through crowds of many thousands of people to get to Jesus for no spiritual purpose. Not to ask for healing or forgiveness or salvation. His only concern is the physical. And he might even be justified in his desire. 
But whether you are justified or not, it's like Jesus is saying, you've made your life about physical possessions. And that's why he says in verse 15, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And this man is there and he is completely missing the point of why Jesus is there. He's missing the point of his own life. He has not come to follow Jesus. He's come to accumulate more because of Jesus. And we could go from there down uh, the, the, the road of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, but that, that would take a little too long, so I'm not going to. We're just going to go from there uh, into the parable because from there Jesus dives right into the parable. It says in verse 16, he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Now, Jesus does something strategic. He's always doing things strategic, but he does so here again. What Jesus does is he contrasts the reality of the situation against the man's perception of reality. And what I mean by that uh, is, is what we find here is the man is saying, hey, these are my crops. But Jesus specifies it's your ground. It's the ground that produced these crops. Why is that important? Because uh, everyone in that time, if you were born and raised in Israel, you were aware of the Jewish law. You were aware of Leviticus chapter 25, which talks about all, all about how to farm the land and farm the vineyards. Uh, and it established things like the year of Jubilee that you would, you would farm for six years and let the land rest on the seventh year. And then when it gets to verse 23, this is God establishing the law. And he says this, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine. Literally, he says, the ground is mine and you reside in my land. Now, remember the man in the parable, he's saying these are my crops, my grain, my barn, and Jesus is, is setting the record straight saying, well, it's God's ground. God is the source here. We can even see an image of this man in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Again, it's a passage that they would have been familiar with uh, where it says in verse 17, you might say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And what we find in this man is he has forgotten the source of his wealth. He has forgotten the source of his wealth. In James chapter 1, it says, don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above. I love that James starts that way. Don't, don't, don't be deceived here and think that it's all you. And you, you might work really hard for everything you have, but the reality is God is still the source. You're still in the wealthiest nation on earth that had most likely nothing to do with you. God is the source of everything you have. And if we believe, if we believe that God is the source of it all, that, that all of the origins of everything we have are in God and not in our own power, then this changes some things in our hearts. It changes our ability to trust him when we're lacking to trust God in those moments where, where we don't feel we have enough, it changes our ability to be generous in those seasons where we have an abundance because we recognize the source of it all. 
if we go back to the parable in verse 18, the man is speaking. He said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now this leads to, to kind of an interesting question. Is having an, a, a surplus okay? Is having excess okay? You might find the answer interesting because that's also back in the law, which they would have been familiar with. We were talking about Leviticus 25, where, where God gives them these instructions. He says, you farm your land for six years. On the seventh year, you let it rest. And then in verse 20, he says this, you may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? But I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes. So God actually says, I'm going to give you so much of a surplus in your life, so much excess in your life, that when you get even to the ninth year, you're still, you're still eating the food from the sixth year. What that tells us is the surplus is provided by God. It's not a sin to have a surplus in life. The surplus was not the issue, and it wasn't the issue with the man in the parable. The issue was the man in the par parable said, it's all for me. I'll build bigger barns, and I'll just rest in that, and it'll all be mine. But if we continued in verse 25, what we find is, is God is saying, I will provide for you. You'll have surplus, but you take care of those in need. You take care of the poor. You be generous. There, there was actually a law written that says the surplus is okay. It comes from God. But at the core of it, they understood this. It comes from God. It comes from God, and it's not all for you. There was a continual command throughout the Old Testament, take care of those who are in need. So first, the man, uh, he forgot the source of his own wealth. Next, he forgot the purpose of his wealth. He wasn't there to own anything. He was there to steward everything. And that's how we have to live our lives. We're not here. We, we own nothing. We steward everything. What you have in life, whether it's great or small, God has given you so that you can steward it. And we actually find this in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, 11. It says, you will be rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And God doesn't ask us to be generous with what we have so that we'll be more miserable in this life. He, he asks us to be generous with what we have, first of all, because it's not ours anyway. We're just here to steward it. But, but second, because there is joy in it. There is joy in that. It's an expression of our faith towards God. The Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I want to show you something in verse 19. Um, we're actually going to put up uh, that same passage of Scripture we just read, but I just want to show you the New King James Version because there's a, there's a word missing from the translation we read a minute ago. So verse 19, this is the New King James. It says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have plenty of goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. So uh, in the NIV, it just says, I will say to myself... I will say to myself, you have many goods. 
But uh, if you actually look at the original, it says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up. Now, why does it say soul in one translation and myself in the other? Because the word used there is not really pointing towards our eternal soul. What it's talking about is basically our mind, soul, spirit, body, every part of who we are, the culmination of who we are as a whole. So that's why one of them says myself, the other says soul, because what it's saying is, is the sum total of your being. And what this guy is saying is he's saying, I have my crops and I have my barns and I have my grain and I have my goods. And he, he kind of adds all this up. And then he says, because I have so much, I will say, my soul, the, the sum total of who I am, you can be at peace because you have so much. It's almost like he is identifying his soul, the sum total of who he is, with the sum total of what he has. We have to understand two things with this. The first is we are not the sum total of our possessions and our accomplishments. But the second is the flip side of that. We're not the sum total of our failures and our mistakes. One of the failures of this man in the parable is he took all of his possessions and he said, this is who I am and I can be at rest because I have so much. And then we get to verse 20 and it says, God said to him, you fool this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. And I think that is the point that Jesus is trying to get at in this whole parable is live lives that are rich towards God. What does that look like? He says a few verses later to seek first the kingdom of God to seek his kingdom and all, uh, everything else will be given to you. Um, on to verse 33 in, in chapter 12, it says, sell your possessions, give to the poor. He says, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Renee, if you want to go ahead and come, I, I want to show you guys kind of, uh, that's the parable, and we're going to zoom out again, and we're going to look at the whole context of what Luke has done here in Luke chapter 12. If you look at Luke chapter 12 as a whole, what, what, what Luke has done is in verse 1 through 11, he's addressed the subject of fear, and he's come to his disciples, and he's, he said, don't be afraid in the face of persecution in the face of, of arrest, in the face of death, don't be afraid. And then from there in verses 13 through 22, we have this man and his parable. And at the core of this issue is security and financial security and peace. And then as we move from there, he goes straight from, uh, into 23 through 30 and he talks about worry and anxiety. So Jesus is uh, laying out th this whole segment of scripture here and he's saying don't fear don't be caught up on your security 
your financial security, and don't give in to anxiety. You know, these three things, specifically if we're talking about financial security, are three of the most paralyzing things that we can face in this life. We can be paralyzed by our fear. And we can be paralyzed by, by our, our fear of being uh, financially insecure, our worries and our anxieties. So Jesus lays all of this out, and then he gets to verse 31, and he says, So seek first the kingdom of God. Rather than focusing on your fears and your securities and your anxieties, what this life is about is seeking first the kingdom of God. I asked the question earlier, and I don't know if I answered it well. Is there anything wrong with desiring what you have earned and what you feel that, that is rightfully yours? The problem with the man in the story is, is he has elevated it to the point where that's, what, that's what's more important to him than the spiritual. There's nothing wrong with desiring justice and desiring what's right. But when that becomes the reason that you fight the crowd to get to Jesus is because so-and-so has what is rightfully yours, that's when it becomes a problem. Uh, John Wesley said, earn as much as you can and save as much as you can so that you can give as much as you can. And when that is your outlook, now Jesus even said, those who are faithful with the small things, I'll make you the ruler over many. When you are faithful with what he has given you today, when you are generous and you steward well what he's given you today, then, then that tells God that he can give you more. And sometimes we want more so that we can give. And he's saying, well, we'll be generous with what I've given you in this moment so that I know I can trust you with more. I want to just specify for a moment, this is not a message about tithes and offerings. Uh, this, is, this is a message about a way of life that, that every part of our lives we are stewarding towards the kingdom of God, that we are helping those who are in need, that we are giving to those who are in need, our time, our energy, finances, whatever it may be. If you're faithful in those small things, God will make you ruler over many things. Can you stand with me? Lord, I pray this morning that our desire for more things will never trump our desire for you. there's anyone in this place, Lord, that needs to repent of that, I, I pray that that would be on our heart right now, that we would see, God, have we put anything in our lives that we desire above our desire for you? And I pray, Lord, that you would take your place at the center of our hearts. I pray as Renee leads us that you would just speak to our hearts. Lord, Holy Spirit, we invite you in this place church as Renee leads us just invite the Holy Spirit to search your heart
mindset that, uh, that we don't own, we only steward. And I pray you help us, Lord, that your spirit helps us to be good stewards of all you've given us, Lord. I pray you go with us this week, and I pray that even this week we run into opportunities to be good stewards for your kingdom. pray grows and grows. In Jesus' name, amen. That's it, church. Uh, so two Saturdays, if you can make it at 8 a.m., they're having that outreach. Uh, if you weren't here last week and you're interested in a yard sign to put in your yard, we have some behind the information table. So that's it. Have a good week. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for a new message every single week. And as always, from all of us at Cranberry Community Church, may God bless you.